0: We all are gonna die. Sorry for the grim thought, but you know, reality. We all are gonna die. And we have already signed up for an adventure we have no clue about how we're gonna die, when we're gonna die, what time, how much will we be able to accomplish. And if you if you accept that as the pinnacle adventure, whatever you call it, adventure, non-adventure, you know, sum up anything that you want to label it, if you have signed up for that. Can writing a song be that hard? Can teaching 5,000 people in an auditorium be ambitious? I don't think so. I mean, that's at least that's the mindset I approach it. every single idea from, that I am going to die. And so while that happens in process, what's the thing I can do before that?
1: How many people have you asked recently what they love about you? What does happiness mean to you? And how do you own your own story? In today's episode, I talked to Dipak Ramola. He created a platform in which you can learn from life lessons of common people with the idea to share wisdom all over the world. One lesson he definitely taught me is your potential is not a gift, it is a responsibility. Deepa, you're 29 years old and reading about your life is like reading uh, a book of success. Out of your own curiosity, you started asking people about their life lessons when you were a teenager and have shared these life lessons in workshops with already over 50,000 people. You are a poet, you write songs for Bollywood, and you published a book last year. So the first question that comes in mind for me is the following one. What does failure mean to you?
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Katharina, for having me and for that bombshell of a question to start this conversation with. Uh, Failure, to me, is not the substitute or the absence of success. Uh, A lot of times people, as you said, right, my life looks like a book of success, uh, but that never really takes away from the fact that failure exists through and through people think happiness is the presence of you know of joy and the lack of sadness but really true happiness is the existence of joy amid sadness and that's pretty much the premise uh, that I have as an answer for what does failure look like it looks like uh, it looks like the contrast to success and that gives you the definition, that gives you the understanding of, uh, uh, you know, the direction one takes. I, I have had an amazing series of failures and here's I, how I see them differently. I see them from the perspective of glory. Is a success glory, is a failure glorious or is it uh, drabby? If it's a drabby failure, I'm not interested. I love to fail. But the only condition is it has to be a glorious failure. And what I mean by glorious is that I have to walk away feeling that this was worth the try or I have learned so much that I will not draw the uh, sketch of regret anywhere close to this failure. And so that's why you see my work of collecting human wisdom, writing songs, poetry, book, I am constantly actually aiming to fail and in the process succeeding because i do not risk it because uh, there is there are things at stake i risk it because there are things to learn so for, for me failure is is a perfect contrast to success uh, is is you know a means to trying new things is, is that a long, windy answer to your question?
1: That, that is an answer to my question, but that gives me um, the idea of if you really fail successful in glory, if, uh, uh, with glory, then I guess you would describe yourself as very successful, right?
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, because we are on the topic of success and failure, I must tell you, interestingly, I mentioned this in my book, 50 Toughest Questions of Life. Uh, you know, I grew up in a small middle class family in a small city, And when I was in grade 11, the sophomore year, um, in the summer vacations, there is a trend in a small city in a middle class house in India that you're expected to participate in an English coaching because you're expected to know the language better. And I spoke fairly good English because I was a debater in school. My sister, however, had trouble with her sentence framing and her grammar. So I accompanied her to an interview where the 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 person who was running the English Coaching Institute in the interview would ask are you successful I was in grade 11 and just gave the interview for kicks I thought I'm here might as well right let's see what questions he asked and he asked me are you successful I was 16 years old and I said yes I I mean, I hadn't written the book, I hadn't traveled the world, I hadn't done whatever I have done now, which has become sort of a measuring scale to my success. And so I now look back often, you know, when I'm on a flight and I try to think, why did I say yes then? And I said, yes, because that's how I define success. I define success as being able to uh, wake up and see another sunrise, And everything else was, you know, either a good failure or a glorious failure or, uh, you know, success that was evolving. And so um, it's very interesting. My, My definition of success has sort of swayed in the same bracket since that interview in grade 11.
1: I sometimes find that life teaches us the lessons we need to learn anyhow. So I... I I was one of these persons who was always running away when there were difficult times. And in the end, the lesson anyhow got me, you know, even if I was on the other side of the world, you created Project Fuel. And before we dive a bit deeper into what you do with Project Fuel, I wanted to ask you if you share with us the role of your mother playing in you becoming an educator.
0: Ah Yes. So I grew up. Uh, you know, with a mother who was pulled out of school in grade five by her grandmother. Um, You know, in her growing up days, there was a belief system that girls should not get educated. And my mother, being the eldest of eight siblings, was the first one to be pulled out from school. And so she never had a chance to return to school, education, you know, learning in that sense. And when she would tell me that story growing up, I would never buy it. My mother, when you get to meet her, Katharina, she is one of the most intellectual, articulate, humorous individuals. And I I, I had a hard time grasping that my mother said she never went to school, yet she's so smart. How does she know so much? And my mother's honest answer at age 14 to me was, life is my classroom. I'm learning simply from living. And so I thought if she's learning simply from living... That means everyone who's living is learning something. And where can I find that information? And I couldn't. I couldn't Google my grandmother's life lesson. I couldn't Google, uh, you know, my best friend's father's life lesson. And so I thought, oh, my God, this is too much pressure to be rich and famous, uh, to leave a legacy and create an impact. How are 7 billion people going to ensure that what they have learned gets passed on? Who takes that responsibility? And so I took it upon myself. I started collecting life lessons inspired from my mother. And every single person I met since I was 14, I would always ask them, what has life taught you? And then I would, you know, use it for my own good or for the collective good of my community. And uh, I had so many of these wisdom nuggets that the only best possible way to, um, you know, make something useful out of it was to pass it on. And so I started teaching these lessons and designing them into a curriculum. And over the last 12 years of my life, it has become, you know, one of world's top 100 innovations in education where you can learn from the wisdom of common people. So my mother was the instigator to a methodology that is now being celebrated around the world.
1: Thank you for sharing that. One thing that is um, for me as a coach and trainer, very interesting. I mean, when you go on Instagram or Facebook, you find these inspirational quotes everywhere. And I'm one of those who gives a lot of likes. But the thing is transforming a life lesson into a teachable, practical practical way um, in a workshop is something that for me is very difficult. And I, I read through your curriculum, I downloaded it and, and checked some of the workshop design that you even pass on free. And I was stunned by how you integrate this life lesson. Can you maybe um, share one story where you took one life lesson and, and how you transformed it into a workshop?
0: Mm, sure, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thank you for downloading the, the one that's open source. It's, it's quite detailed as well. I mean, the simplest example I would give is of a life lesson that came to us uh, about inclusivity. And uh, the activity really is that, you know, imagine an airplane, um, a a ship, a car, a skateboard, and a fish. Five things, right? Growing up, we always were taught to pick the odd one out. So if I tell you there's a car, a skateboard, an airplane, and a ship, and a fish, which one is the odd one? And you'll know it's
1: the fish. The fish, yeah.
0: But then you turn the activity on its head that you've been taught growing up and you say, what would you say to convince the fish that it belongs to the group while the group is trying to tell the fish that it's the odd one out. And now you really have to empathize with this fish. And this is based on the simple life lesson of a girl who said, when it comes to empathy and inclusion, don't ask why, ask why not. When you ask why not, it's easier to fit people in. And when when I got that life lesson and my team and I were deliberating on how to pass it on, my first thought on inclusivity inclusivity was, where do you discriminate? And I thought, oh, you discriminate in school because you're constantly told to pull the odd one out and that's how your critical thinking is measured. Uh, But in what way can you turn that activity around and put the child or the person in the same spot of being the discriminator But now they have to empathize and bring the the fish in. And the fish really is a metaphor for whatever it is that is made to feel uh, secluded, is made to feel bullied or is made to stand out. So there are multiple levels to the game. You start with the fish, but then it goes on uh, the conversations of racial justice. You put a black person, you put a Mexican and a white and a Caucasian and a European. And then you say, you know, what would you say to the black person to convince they belong to this group? That you can do it with age, you can do it with gender. So there is a lead effect of how a, a wisdom nugget uh, that, you know, informs and inspires an activity, a module, uh, takes shape. And, and, and you mentioned about Instagram, Catherine. Now, that's the interesting part. We often see, you know, wisdom or human wisdom and, and, and these as one-offs. You read it as a catchy line. It's a memorable phrase. You take a screenshot, but it takes a lot more to internalize it. And, you know, our effort through Project fueled my entire career, I have been trying to strive for a place where you just don't read somebody's condensation of 60 years of being on planet Earth. You at least invest six minutes in taking notice of it, in observing it, in absorbing it, and hopefully reflecting it back. Uh, does that make
1: sense? That that totally makes sense. And what I think is the the thing that catched me catched me the most. I always read books like autobiographical books from really famous people. And then you're like, yeah, they have a a life story to share. But what you are doing is you give everybody the voice to own their story and share their story and that I can learn from somebody in a different country who is maybe you just met on the street is as important as a, a famous person. I think that got me the most. Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that is really the core intention of this work that every person in the world has a value to offer. And whether they have, you know, a six-digit salary, whether they have invented the latest app, does not matter. Every person's life is their classroom. They are the subjects of their own life's PhD. And if you have it in you, the time, the patience, the will, and the understanding you can really understand their hypothesis better. So the life lessons are really nothing else, but hypothesis on the PhD that every person is doing on their own lives.
1: I need to ask you a question. Um, I I know it sounds maybe a bit strange, but it's something that was bothering me for the last 10 or 15 years. So you're 29 now and you educate people and you educate, I mean, people who are double your age and in group sizes that I cannot even imagine. Have you ever been afraid of that? You ask yourself, am I old enough? Do I have enough knowledge to do that with my age? Oh,
0: yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, when I started, I started at 17. I looked 14 and I sounded 12. And, uh, you know, and I was teaching a subject as complex and as riddled with, uh, you know, non-empirical research like human wisdom. Uh, You know, it has been the wisdom has been in the domain of philosophy and religion for the longest time in human history. It's very recently that you have neuroscientists and psychologists trying to understand wisdom and so when I started at 17 and looked a certain age and sounded a certain age nobody took me seriously Uh, if I mean to, to be very honest with you I never doubted my own self but the people around me were in constant doubt of giving me the opportunity because I wasn't a 50 year old person with gray hair talking about these life lessons and that is where My work, I remember, became more important and imperative. I thought, you know, I I couldn't care less about what that opinion is. I still have to show up. I still have to send 200 emails every month and get an opportunity to speak to students because conventionally, you always receive this wisdom from somebody who's older. And there is no science that proves that wisdom comes with age. We say that all the time. But uh, you know, as Oscar Wilde beautifully said, wisdom comes with age, but sometimes comes only age. <laughs> and so you have to be more cautious. And more importantly, Katharina, when I was growing up, I didn't have accessible role models. Everybody who was a guest lecturer in a, in, a, in our school or in our university were people twice our age. It was hardly anything to relate with. I wanted to. I wanted to be the accessible person in the classroom who could tell you. I know you're 14, but you know very well what it means to be 14 and what life at 14 is teaching you. Don't wait until you're 55 or 42 or hitting a midlife crisis to sit and reflect what your teenage self would have wanted out of you for your 40-year-old self. And so age was a big, uh, I would say, uh, you know, factor for people to put me down uh, in the initial years. But now I actually feel very comfortable if people very, very happily accept me as their guest lecturer or as the keynote speaker. I sometimes doubt. I was like, didn't they get a doubt in their mind? They're getting somebody so young, you know, 29 to speak at their, you know, biggest of conferences and and, and educational forums. Mm, But when people show you that skepticism, I think it's a great flag to find out that what you're doing is all the more needed because it's shuffling some feathers. And then you can, you know, uh, proceed from there, how you want to shuffle the feathers in, in an activist way, in an educator way, in an artist way. And I, I kind of dabbled through all of those, but um, I, I never really doubted uh, that, you know, I am too young for this because I have always believed wisdom has nothing to do with age. It has to do with experience. And so 11-year-old child in Afghanistan trying to figure out his or her life under the Taliban has way more experience than a 62-year-old person in Vienna or in India who's never stepped out of his house or the comfort of his job, right? So uh, those kind of distinguishing factors, components, variables have given me enough confidence to think hopefully nobody finds out that I'm too young. Uh, to be
1: doing this. (laughs) I am so happy that you share this because I started lecturing at university in middle of 20s and I had the different way around. Other people believed in me but I didn't believe I was already uh, old enough and now following a lot of young people that are so inspirational actually gave me the thing like Okay, wisdom can also be just wisdom from one field. It doesn't mean that you are already a wise person, but you're an expert for one field. So, thanks for sharing this. Um, um, that does something with me. Um, oh, thank you. We we already touched Instagram a bit, but uh, recently you posted a question on Instagram, and I will ask you this question you asked uh, your uh, followers. Now, the question okay. is, what would I learn? about you if I had the opportunity to speak to someone who disliked you?
0: Wow. Yeah, that is a question I, I thought a lot about before it got posted. I think if, and you know, this is, this is the interesting part, when you would meet somebody who probably disliked me, you know, uh, they would tell you, I talk a lot and I am... Um, I mean, I talk a lot, but I dream a lot too. And sometimes that becomes a lot for people to catch up with. I'm a high, you know, a high maintenance person, as I would say, because I speak, I really think at the speed of light, I'm constantly observing, absorbing, taking note of things, thinking how to do it. And um, I think that is something that people would point out that, oh my God, he's like a machine gun of ideas. He needs to calm down. Um, The other thing I think if somebody who disliked me would say is that I'm very emotional, very, very vested uh, in people, even even people I don't care about or uh, not to care about, but even in people I don't know personally. uh, You know, I, 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 I sometimes, Katharina, sit and weep for young children in Taliban who are, uh, you know, under the Taliban studying in Afghanistan, I sometimes think and almost get teary-eyed thinking about a woman uh, in the mountains of Uttarakhand where I live who has just, uh, you know, gone to the forest and it has started to rain hailstorm and she has to find her way back from the forest with, uh, you know, a heap of grass for the buffaloes and, uh, you know, an entire bundle of firewood and has to decide to walk that entire path alone at seven o'clock in the night with no electricity in the region. I think about people like that. I mean, sounds sounds a little crazy, but I'm so emotionally vested that people uh, I haven't even met, uh, you know, in in scenarios that I read about or have met, and they have never left me. I've I've had the great fortune of being. Uh, you know, in some of the most volatile refugee camps in the world and teaching there or teaching in Afghanistan or children uh, after the Nepal earthquake or in Bhutan or in Mexico. And I have really seen life up close and personal. You know, my friends in Syria, my friends in Eritrea, uh, trying to smuggle into the UK, uh, you know, through through the border trucks in Calais, France. I think about them often. And I mean, there is... Very little one can do, right, in in such high-stake conflict situations. So my mind often drifts back to those people and the emotions take over so much of my sanity uh, in the sense of my, you know, perturbedness about them. So if somebody disliked me, they would say that I I, I can be an emotional mess when I want to be.
1: When I hear you speaking about this, it sounds like it doesn't... Drag you down, but it gives you energy to actually do something with what you can do from from India or with the life lessons that you share because I also get very emotional attached, but sometimes it just drags me down and I don't have the energy to do anything anymore.
0: Uh, I mean that has changed over time. If I can confess in the initial years, I would teach in a classroom or do an interview and break down in the middle of the interview. Now I have the permission to myself that I can cry, but at my hotel room, not in front of the person. That's how I can distinguish. Because if you overpower the story you are trying to tell as an interviewer or as a person who is an educator or the narrator, then you're not doing justice to the space that that story needs or that life lesson needs. So over time, I have trained myself to not let my dominant emotion dominate the story that I am hearing. Uh, But find another space, another corner to process it. Um, And that has changed over time. I mean, you know, 12 years is a fairly long time to understand how you want to respond to uh, every single life lesson, every single story that comes in. Uh, You have to choreograph the attachment dance that you get close enough to understand, but then far enough to not break down in front of the person. And some days you dance well and some days you lose the beat. But uh, the hope is that you're further along from where you started. So uh, I, think, I think that would be. And another thing people who dislike me would say is that, oh my God, I am so indecisive about so many things. My sister can tell you that. I think she likes that, dislikes that aspect of my nature. I cannot choose between two pictures that have to go up on Instagram or uh, you know about a, a certain text size or something or shopping for that matter. I I can be finicky (laughs) or you got to meet my parents. They probably will fill you in on enough
1: things
0: (laughs) that can be said.
1: Um, We touched already the part about um, knowledge and, um, you know, there is a difference for me between information and knowledge. I mean, we are, we are living in a century of information But having really knowledge is, for me, this integrated information that you make uh, practical. So what is your take on that? Because you not only try to give information, but as I understood, you want to pass on knowledge. So how do you see the difference?
0: Mm. Information is data. Knowing, memorizing, theorizing the data is knowledge. And knowing how to use the knowledge is wisdom. It is having a seed. That's information, right? You have a seed. Knowledge is knowing which season to sow it in. And wisdom is not just knowing which season to sow it in, but how that one seed can really cultivate a garden and fulfill the bellies of your family, can nourish your community, can be great for the environmental sustainability, for climate change. That is really the threat. And uh, knowing one over another will not solve anything. We, We have, I mean, there's a flood of information. What is internet really? It is a flood, you being caught up in the flood of data. You navigating through that information, the people you follow is knowledge. And then when you get off the internet and you sit by yourself in your life, how do you use that is the wisdom that, that is required. So that's how I, uh, I see the, you know, the difference between three.
1: Oh, is there a bird in the background? Yes.
0: <laughs> my studio has a lot of trees <laughs> and uh, you know, that's an additional nice bird song. It was like the applausing
1: to, to your metaphor. You, you know, you met so many people on your, on your way and, 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 the people you collected life lessons from and it was sometimes very rich and high educated people and sometimes you you spoke to indigenous people you spoke to prostitutes you spoke to soldiers and my question is is there anything that you found out that maybe people who we say they are highly educated lost a lot of their gut feeling and knowledge and maybe people we would say you know they are not so educated they didn't have the best start in life, actually have more wisdom and knowledge? Absolutely.
0: The difference between literacy and educated are two different things. A lot of people are literate, which means they have degrees and accolades and, uh, you know, university stamps onto their certification. But that never guarantees a wholesome person. My mother is not literate. She cannot read A for B and one from two but she's educated. And what I mean by educated is when you sit across that person, they know how to hold a conversation. They know how to resolve a conflict. They know how to deal with a heartbreak. They know how to, you know, negotiate better on the street, bargain at a shop. And a lot of people define literacy as being educated. And you would have felt that, or the, the listeners would have felt that throughout their life, you might have met a phd or a double mbbs and a triple masters person and you don't want to be with them at a house party you rather find somebody who you know is really a, 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 a you know a, a simple person with no affectations and no accolades and you have stayed away uh, awake the whole night chatting with them until the wee hours people often label themselves as educated to, uh, you know, compensate for a lot of things that they, they think their literacy didn't provide them for. So it becomes a whale. Education has to become uh, your skin. And people who didn't go to school like my mother or or so many I've met over the years, they are the people who represent that education is your skin. It's not the cloth over your skin. Literacy is the cloth over your skin. And, you know, it makes you look pretty. It it kind of hides you. It gives you some sort of a definition, some sort of a contrast. And in that sense, the other thing that I have learned from from people from all walks of life, whether they were highly uh, literate or not, or whether they had a high level of proficiency or not, is that we all want the same thing. We all want a happy, contentful, peaceful life. And the the specifics of it will differ. You know, the woman on the mountain trying to get home at seven o'clock. All she wants is for her children to do well for her home to have enough firewood and food by the night. I might want to be doing a research for my next project to be funded and for me to document the Maasai tribe in Tanzania. Uh, For you, it might look like, uh, you know, having somebody who suffered from COVID in your close relationship heal. So our definition of happy and contentful life variates, but in the baseline thread, everybody wants the same thing. And that's why, you know, Katharina, it's very interesting. People ask me all the time, how have you been able to travel around the world with no knowledge of local language, with, you know, at, at, with so many difficulties that we seemingly have? It's because I genuinely think that the person I'm sitting across wants the same thing that I want for my life, and that thread will connect us and get us to a point where we can have a conversation and It has never failed me because people can see the genuineness of that of that intention uh, and the connection between people I, I you know one time, I was uh, teaching a refugee from Eritrea in the Netherlands, helping with the refugee integration, and I was asking her her life lesson there is no way she knew english there is no way i knew eritrean or whatever language they speak there we tried to use google and google doesn't have eritrean language as a translate so for after struggling for 45 minutes you know what we decided we decided to draw our stories on a paper and, and show it to literally the pre uh, you know uh, medieval way of doing things We drew what cavemen would have called cave paintings uh, of our lives, where we study what our lessons are, what our parents are, what our families look like. And we had a one and a half hour conversation just by drawing. And uh, that's what I have truly taken away from such experiences that people want the same thing. And if you can convince them that you are invested in knowing how familiar or unfamiliar... that that same thing looks like, their definition of happiness looks like, and that you will be respectful if it looks very different from you. You know, we talk about spirituality and materialism in today's world. And I meet a lot of my friends. I write songs for the Hindi cinema. I meet some of the glitterati and the biggest of stars. They want another bungalow. They want the next fancy car. And so if I go there with my life lesson and say, you know, you should not have a car. One car is way too enough. What I am not having is the respect and the space uh, for their definition of happiness. And, and that becomes a conflicting point uh, for many places.
1: In a podcast interview, you were asked about the most important message you would like to share with the world. And you answered the following your talent is not your gift, it is your responsibility. And I have to tell you, since I heard this, it stucks with me every day and I tell it to all my friends. And there, there are two things that stuck with me. First is questioning myself, what is actually my talent? And second, how can I be so disciplined that I make my talent so great that I actually feel responsible to share it with others? So my question to you is, how did you recognize where your own potential is and how do you discipline and master yourself that you can now have projects to share it with the whole world?
0: Wow, that is a loaded question and a beautiful one. So well articulated, by the way. Really, really well asked. I think the answer to the first part of the question is that I pay attention to every iota of thing I can do. If I can speak well and somebody says, oh, Deepak, you talk well. I will not pass it as, oh, it's so kind of you. Thank you. And never think about that. I actually sit with what I felt or somebody said I was good at. And then I really think, how do I bring this to action and amplify this? We live in a world, Katharina, where we are constantly told what we are not good at, what we can improve, where our shortcomings lie, what we lack. I live my life in the abundance of what is good and can be amplified. And so I don't go around asking people when I meet them, oh, what did you not like about me? What can I do better? I ask them, what do you love about me? So that I can, you know, when I get a chance to meet another human being, I can knock their socks off by amplifying and by passing on what you liked in me. And so my, really my my time, my attention, my scheduling centers around what am I good at? Either I felt it or somebody told me. And uh, once that happens, I think the 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 trickling down of that into your lifestyle into your day to day happens automatically you know when i i i read poetry for the first time i realized i just love how somebody can condense an entire universe of an emotion into two lines i want to be able to do that and when i wrote my first poem i said oh not bad i read it to my sister she said oh, good you know you can do better okay and I said, okay, let me continue. And so uh, the other notion that, that I think people don't really take their talent as their gift, or sorry, as their responsibility and mostly as their gift, because they realize the responsibility has to be one. And the gifts can be many because they can be your hobby and they can be your dilly-dally, tippy-toe, uh, fun things to do. And that happens because we are taught from a young age don't be a jack of all trades, be a master of one. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that phrase? Mm -hmm. Be a master of one, not a jack of all trades. It has damaged more careers in the world, more multi-potentialites than anything else. Because you're told that your calling is this one central thing. And if you don't get to it, you have failed miserably. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have come to believe that, hey, if you don't mind being jack. You're never going to be made to feel reduced by it. And all I want to be is Jack because, you know, the Catherine, the original saying was uh, Jack of all trades, master of none, yet better than just knowing one. That was the full saying that, hey, somebody who's versatile is so much better than somebody who just knows one thing. But we never really, uh, in literature, carry forwarded the second part of that proverb. Or that same. And when I discovered it, I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. And that's what I do. You know, we all are going to die. Sorry for the grim thought, but, you know, reality. We all are going to die. And we have already signed up for an adventure we have no clue about. How we're going to die, when we're going to die, what time, how much will we be able to accomplish? And if you, if you accept that as the pinnacle adventure whatever you call it adventure non adventure you know sum up anything that you want to label it if you have signed up for that can writing a song be that hard can teaching 5000 people in an auditorium be ambitious can uh i don't know painting a village be uh ridiculous i don't think so i mean that's at least that's the mindset i approach uh, it every single idea from that i am going to die and so While that happens in process, what's the thing I can do before that? And maybe it is singing. You know, I've been trying to find a a teacher for my vocals for the last one month and a half because I travel so much. Nobody's really to dedicate that amount of time. But I want to learn to sing. And and my friends were saying to me last Saturday, now what do you have to sing for? You already do like eight jobs. And I'm like, it's not for the job. It's for the joy of, of doing it. And I, I know I'll do it enough and probably I'll do it professionally as well at some stage in my life. But that's not where I start from. Most people start from that place. How does this pay you? I do it so much that it pays automatically because when you do something enough, you you, you, know, you get recognized, you, you, you build a brand around it. So my poetry, my writing, my teaching, my running Project Fuel as a founder, I don't see them as different things. I see this as a constellation. And one star shines brighter on a night than another. And, you know, you you switch from wherever you're standing,
1: you switch your gaze uh, to that. Beautifully said, two things that I definitely will take out of this first. I will be far more adventurous and curious because I know that my parents always said I was this wild, curious girl. When I was little, I will be again. And the second one is, I will ask more people, what do you love about me? I just love it. (laughs) I will do this. (laughs) Yes. And and, I mean, uh, thank you for, uh, for
0: saying that because as I was saying, we don't ask enough people what is awesome about us. And you see, love is a jargon. It's a language encrypted and hidden behind perceptions and prejudices, uh, you know, expectations and excruciating pain, uh, you know, it is hopeful and haunting and all of those things. And only, you know, in the, in, in the becoming comfortable with the patter and in the attempting of its, you know, uh, pathos, do we really come to understand what we mean to someone uh, or what does someone else mean to us? How much do we matter? How much they matter to us? And language is of essence, uh, you know, uh, and yet so inconsequential in it. So I think when we take that attempt of asking people in many ways, what do I mean to you? We're also in a way getting ourselves to answer the question, this is how I can feel more loved. And that's another thing we don't inquire how can I feel more loved in life? People are always taking a guessing game. You know, I i mean, birthdays are the worst, right? Everybody's deciding what to gift you. But you call up five people that you think and you know they're going to gift you and tell them what you really want. Uh, and, and and you know, it'll make their life easier, your life easy. Uh, not to remove the element of surprise, but to encourage uh, the exercise of being more firm, and being more attemptful in, in the alignment of what you want.
1: I mean, isn't it respectful to tell the people what, what you want from them? I mean, then they can make it happen, right? Yes. Yes. I have to think about your mother again. Sorry. But it once I heard you saying that a life lesson you learned from your mom is you have to define who you are by yourself first, before you allow others to define it. And What you were saying right now is this, how much validation and attention and recognition do I need from the outside world? And for me, and, and please tell me if this is not true, but for me, it sounds when I hear you say that you don't need a lot of recognition, um, but you found yourself and who you are for yourself. And this is enough. So you, you just do what you love. You're very curious. And, and this is the way how you inspire Others, is this correct or is there also a (laughs) deep that has self doubt?
0: Oh my god, so much. Uh, A Deepak without self doubt is oh my god, I think it's non existence. You know, a fool with extreme clarity, despite his ignorance, will win over a person who's unclear about their rationale. Uh, So, uh, I am the fool with extreme, uh, you know, clarity, uh, uh, um, you know, despite my ignorance, I would say. Highly ignorant in many things. But there are two things I do, Katrina, that, that make the perception of I am very sorted. One is I'm not harsh on myself. When I fail, when I'm dejected and disappointed, I am that and I move on. Because I don't let myself be defined by that. And that has been very liberating. I, I forgive myself very easily. I, 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 you know, I don't see many people doing that. You know, forgive yourself as, as soon as something happens that's one the second thing is i i know that if i blew it 299 times yesterday today i have an opportunity to blow it 298 times i am not attempting to be zero at any point i think that would be the the most unwise thing to do after collecting wisdom you know for for the majority of my life the fact is you know when i was growing up and i started collecting these life lessons I wanted, I started collecting at 14. And my purpose, Katharina, was that by the time I'm 18, I will be the first person in human history to commit no mistakes because I will know so much. That's what I thought. When I got to 18, I realized learning from other people's knowledge, wisdom, does not mean that you will not commit any mistakes, but that you will not commit the same mistakes you now have the luxury and the empowerment to commit absolutely brand new mistakes. And then tell the world, you know, I tried this, nobody knew what happens in the end. Now I know. And so thank you very much. Even if this hasn't succeeded very well. And that is really, you know, I I never wake up and say, Oh my God, I have to be totally joyous and joyful. Uh, What I try to aim at is if I had a bad day yesterday, that was yesterday. And if the reminiscence of, of it are today, then what can I do now to, to move on to the next step? Um, but yeah, so much of disappointment and dejection. I mean, COVID, right? So much of grief and loss. Uh, it's it's hard to stay unharmed. But um, what I'm not doing is trying to scratch uh, my wounds. I'm trying to let them heal, and that's that's another thing that that happens. You know, when when I overthink. Uh, maybe this is a trade secret that might be useful to you or anybody listening. When I overthink or I start to overthink, I catch myself thinking. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, if your first thought is, as it is today, I see clouds. My next thought would be, it's going to rain. My third thought is, After this conversation with Katharina, I was supposed to go somewhere. And if it rains, I will not be able to go. My fourth thought is going to be, oh my God, this is going to end up on my weekend list. My sixth thought is going to be, I never finish my things on time. By the time of my 15th thought, I will feel like shit. Because I will feel like I am never productive. I'm never disciplined. By the 25th thought in an hour, I will, you know, would have bruised myself with overthinking. And so what I try to do, Kathrina, is I try to catch myself on the sixth thought. And when I'm thinking, oh, my God, I have to go and I will get drenched or I will not go at all. I say, all right, when it rains, think about it then. It's just the clouds right now. <laughs> uh, oh, my God, it saves so much time and so much of mental bandwidth to things. So that's my, my hack at seemingly feeling hopeful all the time.
1: It's brilliant, <laughs> not just because you you are an Indian person, but do you believe in karma?
0: very strongly, very, very strongly, uh, and not just karma that is deposited into a future repository of your next life or being taken away from the treasure chest of your past life, but karma here and now, you know it's science, yeah, every action has a you know reaction to it. What is that reaction? And uh, karma is also consequence, not just negative, but even positive. And so when you start to evaluate your actions on the beam balance of consequence, you can take better informed decisions. That's really how I see karma. Okay, I am choosing to do this. How does it impact my family, the community, the world at large? that's my filter. I never ask myself, Oh my God, as a Hindu, how do my gods perceive this action of mine or in the next life, will I become a snake or another human being, you know, who's uh, petrified, uh, petrified of, 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 uh, you know, life. I see it as my, myself, my family, my community and the world at large. And the moment I'm able to create the radar around that decision, uh. I am able to, I think, sufficiently take a better decision, if not a successful one, in that instance. And um karma is also, you know, something mythologically, if we try, if we really say it is it is your GPS, it's your moral GPS trying to guide you to the right thing. <laughs> uh, what is to do? Otherwise we we can live in a very selfish society we think about the collective good because we have the caveat of karma and it allows us to think beyond ourselves so it is also a beautiful gps that takes you beyond the ego and allows you to be in a state of generous fluidity or what you call the harmonious flow if we were to not define whether it's karma or you know zen or ren as the chinese call it they have different names for it that check-in that pause i see karma as the pause before the drastic step you take a beat and you say okay let me think if this is good enough or not and that beat helps you create the melody that you want so that's how i see karma the rhythm behind the the rhythmic decisions
1: So it's far more in the present and immediate than only going to the future and the next life, right?
0: For me, particularly, yes. I I see that as something very present, not
1: something that's future or past related. I have three last questions. It's always the same questions. The first one is, what is your biggest fear? My biggest fear...
0: is to not be able to impact as many people I hope I can in a single lifetime. Uh, you know, my, my, my goal of collecting life lessons of every breathing individual, 7 billion people, uh, you know, is an ambitious one. And some days I'm very aware that that will never come to be, at least in my lifetime, it will come to be, but, you know, many cycles of generations or people it will take. Um, so I often fear, or I think that will be my biggest regret out of that fear that I'm, I'm, I would not be able to do in a single lifetime all that I want. Uh, I, I sometimes find 24 hours less. And it's not to say it in a megalomaniac way of, oh my God, I'm so awesome that I have so many things to do. It is to say, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm learning to pay attention. And when a child decides to pay attention, the the world is too big and overwhelming and fearful and ridiculously complicated with his visa stamps and money issues and COVID crisis. And in all of these hurdles, to reach to a place where you think you have achieved the highest expression of your potential, uh, my fear is, that that might be a hard thing to achieve. especially COVID has taken two years away, uh, you know, from all the work that we could have achieved. So um, that's really something I fear um, a lot
1: sometimes. The second question, what are you currently doing that you still don't know how it will turn out? Wow. What a beautiful question. I should include it in my
0: sequel to 50 toughest questions of life. I started teaching at 17, and this is something very personal. I think I've never shared it, uh, at least in a podcast before. I started teaching at 17, but even before I went to college. I taught throughout college and then after college, and have created this platform and this movement. And off late for the last one year, I have been constantly thinking about being a student. I love learning, and I have been a teacher for so long that I I want to have a professor that I can ask questions to and act dumb and submit assignments and pretend I have a deadline uh, that that I want to write. I mean, uh, you know, not just that, but be in a room and and be probably the most ignorant person who has to be informed about something. Um, Not just create my own uh, projects. And, you know, that's beautifully what I have cracked. I have been feeling less challenged in in it towards the unknown as you call it and so i am deciding to apply for college applications and take you know a year or two to pursue a master's and uh, i honestly don't know how it will turn out i'm this person who seem seem uh, you know seems to run this entire universe called project fuel who has four book deals who has so many songs to write and here i am deciding to say I will do all of that and I will go and study, uh, you know, go back to college. I really don't know if it's an amazing decision or if it's an amazingly bad decision at this point. Uh, but I'm willing to give it a shot. So, yeah, to answer your question, that's like absolutely at this point in life. And maybe who knows, you know, 10 years later, Katharina, I listen to this podcast and this becomes my map of saying, oh, my God, I told Catherine, and this is what happened. So we should do a follow-up to this question in another podcast in, in in three years or five years time.
1: You know, if you fail, I heard from a very wise person, just fail greatly. So <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. So so I'm excited about that unknown. Yeah. And let's see how it turns out.
1: So the next thing, the last one, is not a real question, but is um something a bit different. I have this. Very uh, nice book, as you see here. And I, I write inspirational quotes in them, things that I saw on Instagram or wherever. And I will flip through the pages and you will say stop at a random place. And then you will just comment on that quote, whatever comes up. OK, so I, I start uh, going through the pages and you say stop. Stop. Do you want to go left or right? Uh, take uh, left. Left. And there are four quotes. Which number do you want to have? One, two, three, or four? Ah, wow. Number two, maybe. It's from Charles Darwin, okay? So the quote is, it is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change.
0: Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Probably that's the message from the universe. (laughs) I love that. Thank you for sharing and what a beautiful way of uh,
1: doing that. Thank you very much for being in this podcast.
0: I, I have to say, I have done so many of these conversations throughout my career. This felt like I have known you for a decade and we are sitting across each other in Vienna or in Dehradun, India and speaking. Thank you for bringing the comfort of not just familiarity, but the comfort of uh, flow into this conversation. Thank you.
1: If you like this podcast, please follow me on Facebook at podcast into the unknown or on Instagram into underscore the underscore unknown underscore podcast. You can listen to this podcast on www.intotheunknown.at, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.